From Brennan to the Boca Chill, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Sawduck to lovely Duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine. The climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for listening to episode 30, Bertha Knight Landis. Since politics, until recently, has been a man's world, men, as a whole, are responsible for its corruption. Born in 1868 as the youngest of nine children, Bertha Knight grew up on the East Coast in Massachusetts. She studied history and political science at the University of Indiana, graduating with her bachelor's degree in 1891. After a few years as a teacher, she married a fellow Indiana student by the name of Henry Landis, who became a professor of geology and later dean of the College of Sciences at the University of Washington, prompting a move to Seattle. Once in Seattle, Bertha Knight Landis gave birth to three children. The oldest, Catherine, died at the young age of nine, while a son, Roger, did not survive infancy. A second son, Kenneth, came along later, and the family also adopted a daughter named Viola. Landis first entered the civic arena through her involvement in women's clubs. Popularized in the years following the Civil War, these clubs were initially organized to provide women with avenues for self-improvement and cultural opportunities. By the late 19th century, they had also become centers of political action for women who, otherwise generally kept out of politics, desired a method of civic engagement. Clubs lobbied for temperance, labor regulations, educational reform, improved public health, and other progressive causes. Landis became heavily involved in club life after moving to Seattle. She was a charter member of a group called the Sunset Club and was actively involved in the Women's University Club. In 1906, she joined the Women's Century Club, which had been founded 15 years earlier by prominent suffragist Carrie Chapman Catt, who will probably make up an episode in the future. She's got a very fascinating life story. From 1918 to 1920, Landis served as the club's president, mobilizing its resources and members to assist the war effort after the U.S. entered the Great War. She organized five Red Cross auxiliaries and then, feeling she could do more, helped found the Washington Minute Women, a group that raised money to support soldiers and their families. Landis had, by this point, become a prominent figure in Seattle civic affairs. From 1920 to 1922, she served as the president of the Seattle Federation of Women's Clubs, and during that tenure, she planned a week-long economic showcase for Washington manufacturers that would be run by her and staffed by over a thousand club women. The successful women's educational exhibit for Washington manufacturers brought Landis to the attention of local businessmen and political leaders, and later in 1921, when Mayor Hugh Caldwell created a five-member commission to tackle Seattle's unemployment problem, he appointed Landis as the lone female member. Landis so impressed her fellow commission members that one suggested that she run for city council, insisting, we need a woman in the city council, a woman of your type. Landis took him at his word and in 1922 ran her own campaign for a council seat with the help of four fellow club women. 
While existing Seattle politicians worked within a political machine that ran on graft and favors, Landis staffed her 1922 campaign entirely with political amateurs and kept to a tight budget, avoiding entangling alliances with interest groups. She wanted to maintain clean hands amidst rampant political corruption, presenting herself as a reformer who would work to stop illegal gambling and foster a more upright police force. She succeeded, winning 80% of the vote more than any previous candidate for Seattle's city council. A second councilor elected in that race was another woman, Catherine Miracle, and the two became the first women to serve on the Seattle City Council. As one of her first acts on the council, Bertha Landis presented an ordinance that would close every single one of Seattle's popular taxi dance halls. At these establishments, working-class women, who were referred to as taxi dancers, would dance with gentlemen for money, while the women often heavily encouraged the men to buy alcohol, which was illegal at the time due to prohibition. These women also occasionally sold sex. Bertha Landis looked at dance halls and saw nothing but dens of vice and corruption, but for many working-class women, these establishments offered the best and easiest way to put food on their tables. Charging 10 cents a dance, a woman could make anywhere from 5 to up to $10 a night at dance halls. A week of grueling work in a factory would have typically brought her less than $14. This proposed ordinance quickly met with heavy objections from the women working in these establishments. Several of these taxi dancers even met with Bertha Landis in her home. There, they went on to explain that their work in the dance halls that Bertha was proposing to close down was an economic necessity. With this personal appeal from the women and strong opposition from other members of the city council, perhaps in part to their frequent visits to the establishments that Bertha was hoping to close, led Landis to alter her view and her proposal, enough so that it allowed the dance halls to remain open but would heavily regulate them going forward. This was much preferred to everyone involved than outright closing them down entirely. Landis's ordinance passed in 1923 and mandated that all dance halls must obtain operating licenses from the city, they must hire female chaperones, they must not allow indecent or immoral acts, and they must retain bright lighting at all times during hours of operation. Bertha would be lambasted in upcoming public hearings over this. Shamefully, prior to the passage of this ordinance, Bertha even received death threats due to her crusade. Nonetheless, she persevered and managed to push the regulation through a very unfriendly Seattle City Council. She was quite proud of this achievement, which curbed the worst of the excesses in the dance halls while allowing women to keep their jobs. This was, in Bertha's view, a win-win for everyone involved. Bertha Landis was a realist, but not a radical. She wrote in Cool Years in 1929, I believe in a sane, wise, and reasonable enforcement of any law and in the preservation of public decency. She was a practical politician, noting the necessity for compromise in small things in the hope of providing for greater ones. But while Bertha understood that vice would never be entirely banished from Seattle, one of the United States' capitals of vice at the time, she had little patience for those who let it run rampant. And there were many, many people in Seattle who chose to look the other way when it came to dealing with the city's vice problem. June of 1924 saw Bertha Landis elected president of the Seattle City Council, the first woman to ever hold that position. 
when Seattle's mayor, Edwin J. Brown, left town for New York City later that month to attend the Democratic National Convention, Bertha Landis became the acting mayor, again, the first woman to ever do so in Seattle. Around this time, Seattle was home to a very corrupt police force that oftentimes merely winked at prohibition and was known throughout the country. A short side note here, since we're kind of talking about Prohibition, and I've never really mentioned it on the podcast before, but there's a family legend that states that my great-grandfather ran booze down from Canada in his boat during Prohibition when he was a teenager, since his father from an early age taught him to love and know the waters of Puget Sound. Anyways, Henry A. Chadwick of the Argus newspaper wrote in November of 1923 that the town was practically a legal free-for-all, Saloons, in the guise of a soft drink place, started up on every hand. Lewd women rented apartments and did a big business of selling booze. Seattle has become so rotten it stinks. Bertha Landis was not having any of this. And good on her. Wish we had someone like that in the city today. Shortly before Bertha took over as acting mayor, William B. Severins, the city's police chief, argued to journalists that the lax enforcement of federal prohibition, gambling, and prostitution laws was not the fault of his, but that of the fact that he was reportedly hamstrung by the Civil Service Commission and local civil service regulations became a scapegoat. He stated that he couldn't fire the reportedly at least 100 officers on his police force that were known to be corrupt. Again, Bertha Landis was having absolutely none of it. On the 23rd of June, 1924, acting Mayor Landis called Severance into her office where she handed him a letter that demanded he remove all of these apparently crooked policemen. She gave Severance 24 hours to do so. She would handle the Civil Service Commission, partially believing the chief statements to be complete baloney. Severins was furious that a woman temporarily in charge would dare to give him orders, and he responded with his own letter, pointing to a section of the city charter allowing the mayor to take over the police department in an emergency situation. Bertha Landis later characterized his response as a jeer, writing that he told her, Be chief of police yourself if you don't like the way things are done. Bertha Landis took him at his word and declared a state of emergency and promptly, but not probably quickly enough in her mind, fired Chief Severns. She appointed Inspector J.T. Mason as acting chief of police. She rapidly learned that he was very similar in character to former Chief Severns and fired him less than 24 hours after his appointment. She then assumed control of the Seattle Police Department herself. Claude G. Bannock, a former assistant police chief with a noted reputation for honesty, was appointed by Bertha to be the acting police chief. Within hours, Bannock was leading raids on some of Seattle's most notorious speakeasies, lotteries, and illegal punch boards. Word soon reached the ear of Mayor Brown in New York City that Landis had declared all-out war on the Queen City's lawbreakers and vice-mongers and its corrupt cops. He promptly left the DNC and caught the next train home. He arrived in Seattle five days later and immediately reinstated Chief Severance to his position. The mayor then argued that Bertha's actions were unnecessary because, quote, Seattle is as good and clean as any city on the American continent. Newspapers around the country covered the incident, often in a mocking tone with headlines like Chief of Police Ousted by Woman and Cradle Rocking Hand Rocked Police Department. Mayor Brown was thoroughly embarrassed and complained vigorously that the situation had, quote, put Seattle in a bad light all over the country. 
But Bertha was satisfied, saying, I do not believe in a puritanical administration, even if I was born in Ware, Massachusetts, she told a journalist. But there should be more rigid law enforcement by our police, and I believe there will be henceforth. A score of places where there was gambling two weeks ago are now closed. Landis hoped that she had shamed Brown into keeping a tighter lid on illegal activity, but he returned Seattle to the status quo. Two years later, Landis campaigned to replace him. Many today say that Bertha argued for a woman's place in politics by using traditional gender norms. In evidence of this, while campaigning for mayor in 1926, Landis described her platform as municipal housekeeping. First gaining popularity in the 1890s, the concept of municipal housekeeping justified women's entrance into the public sphere by imagining the city as a macro version of a home. Using this logic, women's domestic skills, like keeping a budget and rearing moral children, could be well applied to solving civic problems. Bertha used this model to retain a traditional feminine role even while entering the masculine domain of politics. When faced with the argument that a woman's place is in the home, Landis replied that she had spent her life in the home, raising her children and supporting her husband, and only once her children were grown and married did she seek to enter public service. She's quoted as saying, I suppose some of the politicians believe I should merely stay at home and darn my husband's socks, she remarked to the New York Times. Darning socks for one's husband is a laudable occupation, no one will deny, but I found that my husband got along very well after I became a member of the city council. Bertha Landis argued that since advances in technology had reduced women's domestic workload, if a woman is not to be a parasite, she must turn her energies to public service of some kind. But Bertha proposed that only older women whose children were already grown should enter politics, and she spoke of it as a calling more than of a job. In fact, she argued that male politicians were corrupt in part because they saw politics as a career and sought to make money from their positions. Conversely, in keeping with the gender norms of the day, a woman would depend on her husband for financial stability, Landis assumed, and so would not be concerned about low government salaries or tempted by opportunities for graft. Women are actually better fitted than men for the post of mayor, Landis told the Oakland Tribune, because they are not thinking of future political careers. As a candidate in the nonpartisan mayoral election, she had no declared party. Bertha pledged to clean up Seattle to enforce prohibition, shut down illegal gambling houses and brothels, and root out corruption in law enforcement. Seattle found her message appealing. She defeated the incumbent Mayor Brown by about 6,000 votes with a record voter turnout of over 90,000 in a city of about 350,000. In doing so, Bertha Landis became the first female mayor of a major American city. On a quick side note, the first female elected as mayor anywhere in the United States was elected to be the mayor of the small Kansas town of Argonia. Susanna M. Salter was elected mayor on April 4, 1887. She passed away in 1961 at the age of 101, so she more than likely heard of Bertha Landis' pioneering victory out in Seattle. Bertha Landis was serious about closing the town to illegal liquor, and during her tenure as mayor, the number of annual arrests for alcohol violations more than doubled. Speakeasies fled across the Seattle city line into the rest of King County, which retained its lackadaisical prohibition enforcement. Bertha also worked to root out corruption in the police department and shut down illegal gambling and prostitution. Vice and lawlessness cannot be completely eradicated, she later wrote, but open flagrant violations of law should not be tolerated for an instant. 
In addition to campaigning as a moral reformer, Bertha had emphasized her commitment to the bottom line. Upon taking office, she inherited a city-owned streetcar system that was hemorrhaging money. Her administration overhauled the system's budget, cut back on less-used routes, and appealed to Washington State to refinance the entire railway, making Seattle streetcars profitable once again. A supporter of municipally owned utilities, she also cut expenses in the water department and maintained public control of City Light, the local electric utility, which had been facing an attempted private takeover. While Bertha Landis recognized the increased pressure she faced as the first woman mayor of a major American city, in politics it commonly takes a superior woman to overcome the handicap of traditional prejudice, she wrote in Cool Years. She also insisted that she be treated the same as a male politician. During her time on the city council, Landis demanded to be called councilman like her male peers rather than councilwoman. She later wrote in the magazine Woman Citizen, I threatened to shoot on-site without benefit of clergy anyone calling me the mayoress instead of the mayor. During her tenure as mayor, Landis refused to let her gender and gendered ideas about respectability stand in her way. She visited the same places and greeted the same visitors as a male city leader would. She opened baseball games, broke ground for new buildings, flew in a Navy float plane, and rode in a submarine. Bertha even pushed for the development of Seattle's Boeing Field, which I briefly mentioned all the way back in Episode 6. When Seattle began construction on a new dam, Bertha put on her oldest clothes and tramped with muddy shoes all about the site to observe conditions at a first hand. To celebrate the opening of a railroad terminal, she drove the first electric locomotive into Seattle on that line. She entertained foreign dignitaries like the royal family of Romania and American celebrities like Charles Lindbergh. An English woman once asked me, Whom do you have to do the things a woman cannot do and go to the places a woman cannot go? She wrote in 1929. There were no such things or places in Seattle when I was mayor. In Bertha's day, Seattle's mayor served two-year terms and she faced re-election in 1928. By this point, prohibition had become increasingly unpopular and Seattle citizens were growing quite tired of Bertha's reformist ways. Her efforts to remove dishonest officers from the city's police department had also won her a host of enemies. A local businessman and political unknown named Frank Edwards ran against her, funded by policemen Landis had fired, opponents of her public power plan, and those who yearned for a government that winked at liquor and gambling laws once again. Frank's campaign spending was unprecedented in Seattle at the time, variously estimated at from $20,000 to $50,000 for election to a position which only pays a salary of $7,500 a year, wrote the New York Times. He employed hundreds of paid workers, purchased billboard, radio, and newspaper ads, and embarked on a general PR blitz. The campaign was light on policy proposals, and his main message seemed to be that Bertha Knight Landis was unsuitable for office simply because she was a woman. When Landis challenged him to a series of debates, Edwards declined, saying, Any married man knows the danger of getting into an argument with a woman. How disgusting. So at the first planned debate, Bertha Landis spoke alone with an empty chair on stage to represent the absent Edwards. Can it be true, she asked the empty chair, that a man is afraid of a woman? If we need a man as mayor of Seattle, why is it that the man who is the nominee for this office is afraid to meet me in debate? 
The New York Times wrote, She laughs as she conducts these one-sided debates and appears to get as much kick out of them as her hearers, and the audience is usually in an uproar. But outside the debate hall, Edwards' message found a receptive audience. Seattle is sensitive to its reputation as a he-man city, Julia and Budlong wrote in The Nation at the time. It did not like to be teased about its mayor. During her time in politics, Bertha Landis had not curated a political machine or developed a network of officials and businessmen who depended on her. Her commitment to honest government meant that she was easy to oust. Meanwhile, supporters who backed her in 1926 over a desire for reform were less motivated to vote now that Bertha Landis has succeeded in cleaning up the city. Local newspapers, including the Seattle Times, endorsed Bertha Landis for re-election as mayor, but come election day, Edwards trounced her by over 19,000 votes. Despite speculation that she might run again, Bertha Landis never re-entered politics. During the 1930s, she and her husband led University of Washington students on a series of study trips to Asia. After her beloved husband Henry died in 1936, Bertha agreed to lead the tour alone for another summer. In ever-failing health, she curbed her public activities but continued to live alone at the Wilsonian Hotel in the University District until 1941 when she moved to Pacific Palisades, California. Bertha Knight Landis passed away at her son's home in Ann Arbor, Michigan on the 29th of November, 1943 at the age of 75. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include Woman's Place, A Guide to Seattle and King County History by Mildred Tanner Andrews, The Washington Secretary of State's website, mentalfloss.com, The Origins of the Washington State Liquor Control Board, published in 1934, Washingtonians, A Biographical Portrait of the State, and the University of Washington Libraries. A special thank you goes out to Alan Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. Thank you for listening to Episode 30, Bertha Knight Landis. Episode 31 will be released next week and will focus on George Washington and the founding of Centralia. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. From Brennan to the Boca Chill, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Saldot to lovely Duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, Climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for listening to episode 30, Bertha Knight Landis. Since politics, until recently, has been a man's world, men, as a whole, are responsible for its corruption. Born in 1868 as the youngest of nine children, Bertha Knight grew up on the East Coast in Massachusetts. She studied history and political science at the University